Right. Hello, good evening, listeners. Welcome to the Big Issues podcast. I am Dowd Khan. Well, you know who I am by now. We're 66 episodes in, two-thirds to the 100 mark. Uh, oh, my that. good God. What the hell? It is That is not what I think it is. What? Is that the year 13 football match top against the teachers? Yeah. Please tell me you won. Yeah. Good lad. Was it 2-1 or was it 2-0? <clears throat> uh, 10-9. How long were you playing for? Uh, an hour and a half, 90 minutes. Do you Come play by the rules of FIFA indoor football? Where it's just yes. Complete... <laughs> <laughs> Do you play? You you think, no, no, we will not play by outdoor rules where it's an actual you know, competitive match. Indoor. Mm-hmm. That was just booted on the top of you guys. <laughs> I can I can confirm I booted it about fifty times. Good lad, good lad. I would not expect anything less from you, James. That is how we do it. If in doubt, boot it. If in doubt, boot it out. You know. Yeah, I was gonna. I was thinking. Should I say it? But I think it's, to be honest, if I did say that, it would just be part of a very long list of remarks. <laughs> It'd be like we didn't expect doubt. We didn't expect doubt. Offensive remarks take a right turn on the street. <laughs> All right. Now, listeners, for those of you that have missed our witty repartee back and forth, um, actually, let me just quickly check one thing. Is it this Sunday? If it's not, we can do an episode probably on Monday. Apparently, Eid this Sunday. I, I hope it's All not right. really because it's too because it's too soon after the last one. Hmm. Uh, Thursday, 29th of June. Oh, good. So that means we can, listeners, do an episode for you on Sundays if circumstances allow, and I uh, sincerely hope circumstances do allow for an episode on Sunday. Yeah, I prefer uh, to do it on Sunday than Monday anyway. I know, because your exams are now finally over, so we can go back yeah. to the normal order of things, the normal order of things yeah. that they should be. Uh, listeners, you might be noticing a bit of joviality in my tone, which is quite unusual. No, it's not. I always have joviality in my tone. I could talk about the pre-existing of insurance policies, and I could still make it sound quite interesting <laughs> to the joviality in my tone. Uh, but I'm going to just do one quick promotion. This is not paid promotion. This is on the Dowd Khan thesis. This is not like when I advertise KW back in the days. And I for product placements for the butchers. No, no, this is... Uh, this is... <laughs> So this is quite different. Uh, for all the good Swifties out there, for all those good people, the 14th and 15th of June 2024, get that date for Liverpool Anfield Stadium. If you have not got those dates in your calendar, get them in your calendar. And James's face is like when, Rory, when Alistair Campbell talks football to Rory Stewart. <laughs> He's like, what is this man on about? Let's talk politics. What's a Swiftie? Uh, fans of Taylor Swift. No, like, uh, why do they get? Why? 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 Taylor Swift's a Liverpool supporter. Yeah, no, no, she's doing a tour. Uh, she's doing a tour right now, international tour, James. So she's, she's doing a tour. To, and she thought, do you know I want to go? I want to go to Amsterdam. She's, she's coming. She's actually doing uh, Edinburgh, Liverpool, Cardiff, and London in the uh, UK. The nice uh, all along the Ma- uh, she's doing it around the world. She's going to Mexico, going to France, going to Spain, going to Germany, going to England, going basically around the whole world. We're starting in America right now, of course. We'll start with the. Mm-hmm. The country people first, but uh, I thought I'd leave that piece of paper motion out there. And yes, my ticket will be bought. But now we must now return to more serious matters before the podcast. Did you ever go down. to a concert with Taylor Swift? Of course, of course. 
Oh, that, that is one of the best things I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> that, that must be on shocking level of par with my originalism. Yeah, it's on that level of shocking. It, that, is, that is how shocking that fact is. It's, it's shocking is when we're talking about originalism versus the evolutionist judicial philosophy. Um, but now to regain my shattered credibility, let's, uh, let's talk. Let's talk about our natural comfort zone, politics. And let's talk yes, in particular yes. about of Watergate now. So the good listener wants to know why I'm rambling on even more longer than I normally do. We're going to start a new theme this year, this podcast. We're not going to do this every week, but we're going to start a rather what 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 we would call in in football sporadic uh, theme. Um, we're going to look at scandals, mm. very big scandals, and we're going to analyse them. So we ran contra. Uh, to Bloody Sunday, to Watergate. We're going to look at sewers even, or FEMA. We're going to look at big scandals and we're going to talk about them, along with our typical uh, UK historical and, and political and debating on, you know, self-sufficiency versus welfare. Along with our debates, along with our history episodes, we're also going to look at scandals. So I think that was going to inspire people. To do what? Yeah. To go out and not commit these scandals again. We must learn the lessons of Watergate. So let's start with the biggest scandal of all, Watergate. Mm. Uh, we're not really going to debate the merits of Richard Nixon because I'm a passionate Nixon fan. Me, I mean, this is an episode where Michael Cellino would be so beneficial because me and me and Michael would just be sitting there and basically brainwashing James into loving Nixon. That's what we would be doing. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, this point reminds me of when in the Watergate hearings, and uh, I think it was. Um, Mr. Dash, who said to uh, John Mitchell, the Attorney General, why did you, you tell Gordon Liddy to leave the room when he gave you the Watergate plan? And John Mitchell goes, with hindsight, I should, I, my only regret is I didn't throw him out the window. And Sam Irvin, the <laughs> committee chairman, goes, well, since you did neither. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's make a start. Now, listeners, because it's a history of so we are going to do our typical reading from the bullet point and debating the bullet mm. point. But we're gonna, but we're gonna see something. Uh, I've got James, and I've got a list of questions, and we're gonna have a back and forth. So yeah. it will not be like the last episode where we were talking about the percentage of insurance reserves and the healthcare reform and the deal-making skills of insurance providers. I promised mm. myself at the last episode it would not be that bad ever again. <laughs> it was bad. It was very informative, but it was yeah. a bit tedious to read. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, how have you got your questions? By the way, I've got the questions. Yeah. How many have you got? Twenty, thirty, fifteen. I've got ten. Ten? Oh Christ! I want to make ten up on my head then. Why right, is that not enough? No, I want to make ten on my head. I want to make ten from the head. Ten, ten will be more than enough, Dad. You think so? Yeah, mm. probably will. Mind you, because the the bring up question. All right, just tell you what then. Bring some up spontaneously then. Feel yeah. free to interrupt with spontaneous questions. Okay. Uh, shall I start? Yeah, flip it, I'll start. How are we going to do this? We're going to do like four bullet points at a time or something. Because uh, good listeners, I've only broken this down in sections of three years, 1972, 1973, 1974. It's not the usual of, you know, reform in the street. Well, if we, did, if we just do 1972... And then yeah. we ask questions on that, then 1973, then ask questions on that, then 1974, and then ask questions. No, no, I that. mean, in terms of going through it, so, so I, all right, do you know what I'll do? 
We'll mm-hmm. start nice and two, but as we're going through it, I'll start putting stuff heading, and then we'll just take it to the things at a time. Okay, yeah, that's fine. All right, tell you what, let's do that. Okay, so I tell you what, James, you start, and whilst you're doing it, whilst you're talking, I will do the subheadings. Okay, yeah, that's fine. So on January, uh, so this is the 1970. This is a Watergate scandal. <laughs> a Watergate scandal. The scandal of all scandals. The scandal that inspired Gate at the end of every the single scandal. The goat of scandals. Yes, technically, we've got to follow the Watergate rule, like Partygate and all those gates. Mm-hmm. It should be Watergate Gate, is the yes. technical term for the honor the Watergate scandals deficiently. Yes, exactly. So, on January, uh, seven, uh, January 20th, sorry, 1972, Richard Nixon kicked off his re election campaign with an address to the Congress in his State of the Union. And then by June 17th, 1972, five burglars were arrested for breaking into in the Watergate complex. Uh, they were carrying surveillance bo- uh, bugs and uh, crisps, uh, uh, crisp one hundred dollar bills, and did not and did not resist arrest. And on June nineteenth, Martha Mitchell, the wife of Attorney General uh, John Mitchell, acquired a copy of the L.A. Times mm. and recognized the name of one of the burglars, James W. McCord. This is significant. Because... Yeah, this is significant for two reasons. Because six days later, Martha Mitchell was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number one. Uh, and two, because she was a very, uh, yes, gregarious, but also very outspoken woman. She famously said to the press, my husband is taking the fall for the president. Let's be honest here. And she was also drunk most of the time, but she was a very, uh, very uh, colourful individual. And of course, Mr. McCord, well, we'll talk about Mr. McCord later, but he's very significant in this plot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um... Yeah, so uh, James W. McCord, who's and he was a security chief for the campaign uh, for re-election right. of the president. Now, right. on June twentieth, due to a tip-off from Deep uh, Deep Throat, who was a who was later to be known as director of the FBI, Mark Felt, um, Bob Woodward um, of the Washington Post, arguably him and Carl uh, Bernstein, uh, being the greatest investigative journalists in history, made a they tip-off are. to Woodward. Uh, Woodward, Woodward, sorry. Woodward, Woodward. Yeah, Woodward. Um, that one, that one of the burglars uh, had E. Uh, e. Howard's Hunt's address book and checks, yes. uh, and from E. Edwards, uh, from E. Edwards Hunt was working in the White House in the Special Investigation Unit and had links to Charles Colson, who was this the president. This is tip advisor off. This is dot man. number one. This is dot number one to the issue. And let's be clear about this: the breaking was big because it was five people who broke into the Watergate. And all of them were either working, used to work for the CIA, worked in the Bay of Pigs operation, and and it was the obvious. There was five burglars in suits with money in their pockets, and it was a threat. Which brings, of course, the obvious question: Did someone put up a lot of money to have the Democratic Party in headquarters infiltrate within the Watergate Hotel? If so, who and why? Why did they break in the Watergate Hotel? Let's remember the obvious facts here. This was the fourth attempt they had to break in the Watergate Hotel. This was, this was attempt number four. The first time they broke in, they only could bust the lock before leaving. The second time they broke <laughs> in, they only took some money and left. The third time they broke in, they just put some bugging devices in and just heard about Larry O'Brien's dentist. And the fourth time is the one they got caught on because of the incompetence. I mean, they were bugging him because it's the Watergate course was the DNC's office. And who's chairman of the DNC? Mr. Larry O'Brien, the best attacker against the Vietnam War and a man who said, <laughs> infamously said, 
if Richard Nixon isn't a war criminal, then I'm not a Christian. <laughs> and about, this, was, this was after the uh, infamous uh, photos of when Nixon had accident, well, accidentally bombed a school in uh, on the DMZ part, just over the DMZ in North Vietnam, and that horrendous photo of young children fleeing the, the bombed out school with mm. burning it up alive. And everyone yeah. just thought, what? This was the Easter bombing, of course. It was the Easter bombing. Yeah. Um, and Mr. O'Brien was very much against Vietnam and would attack it mercilessly. So Nixon tried to get that's how the, that's why the Watergate was bugged, because that was his officers. Yeah. Exactly. And um and basically from 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 that, um hmm. In June, oh yeah, so on June uh, the 20th, 1972, um, it's also significant because it was the day Richard Nixon, his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, had a conversation. Could you do me a favour? Could you break all these into subheadings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't, not that I can't, it's just I'm going through them and thinking, what do I do, good lord? Where do I, which one do yeah. I put it under? I'll go through it, and the next subheading, you go for it. Okay, yeah. I'll I'll take you through seventy-two. You do all the subheadings, and then seventy-three, you can make a you can make a start, my friend. Yeah. Okay. All right, good lad. Right. So what happened was deep throat. Mike Mark Felt, director of the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigations, tells Bob Woodward of the Washington Post that one of the burglars had links to E. Howard Hunt. Now, who is E. Howard Hunt? Ex-CIA, ex-FBI, ex-Bay of Pigs operator, and also an advisor to the White House and the Committee to Re-elect the President of the United States. So, yeah, the fact that one of the burglars had his checkbook is interesting. And actually, it's an interesting fact. Do you know who E. Howard Hunt's son's godfather is? No. William F. Buckley Jr. <laughs> <laughs> the world is a small place. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes, yeah, so then June twenty ninth, nineteen seventy two. This is a very significant date in the Watergate timeline. Why? Because Nixon and his chief of staff Bob Haldeman, and of course Doe John Ehrlichman, his national domestic policy advisor, not in the meeting. Haldeman and Ehrlichman were so powerful they were called the Berlin Wall because they just shielded Nixon no matter what. Um. And Haldeman and uh, Nixon were having a conversation, and this is the day the infamous 18 and a half minutes were erased from the tape. Now, as we go into Watergate later, you will know that's a significant thing, but this is the day when the 18 and a half minute tape was erased at five different points. So it wasn't a mistake, it was a deliberate erasure, which is, of course, obstruction of justice. Mm-hmm. So this is very significant. Um. Right, go on. Are you still subheading? Yeah, I'm still subheading. You're going down. You're going. Ah, okay. All right. When you still subheading, I'll let you do the next one. So, June 22nd, 1972, Nixon is in San Clemente, California, in his house. His house that he did with up of public funds, and the liberals said, Ooh, he used money to build a house. Oh, God, we can't live. Because, of course, uh, the liberals, everyone should just live in huts. No, no, no. He had a nice house in San Clemente. And he comes out and says, uh, no one in the White House was involved in this very bizarre incident. 
And I had my investigator, John Dean, do an investigation. And he's validated this view, uh, which is hilarious. And John Dean later said that was the first he heard of his investigation. <laughs> of this, of, this investigation never happened. And yeah. Nixon was part of the cover-up two days before on, Jan- on June 20th. He was part of the cover-up of, of Scandal. And he basically just lied to the press, <laughs> willingly lied to the press. But you have to remember, at this point, Richard Nixon was 19 points ahead of George McGovern. He was only about four points ahead of Hubert Humphrey. He was two points behind Scoot Jackson. But he was 19 points ahead of George McGovern. So who did the Democrats pick to be the nominee for President of the United States? Yes, George McGovern. He was actually, let's be honest, George McGovern is a gentleman, and we're big fans of McGovern. But we all just shake our heads and sigh. I mean, you could pick Hubert and win. You could pick Scoot Jackson and win. No, let's pick George McGovern, the one man who could not win an election against Nixon. Um, Because that, of course, I mean, famously, was it Nixon or John Connolly? who labelled George McGovern brilliantly as the candidate for abortion, amnesty and acid. (laughs) That is how you define your opponent. I mean, McGovern was campaigning to the left of Bernie Sanders on many things, you know. He gave his convention speech, was a fantastic convention speech, but you you label your opponent easily, and Nixon did that fantastically. Um, June 23rd, Nixon Haldeman, ah, ah, this is another key date in the Watergate investigation. Nixon and Haldeman talk about getting the director of the FBI, L. Patrick Gray, to stop investigating Watergate by telling by getting Helms, CIA director Helms, to tell uh, Nixon, sorry, tell L. Patrick Gray to stop investigating the Watergate. This is obstruction of justice. This is a crime. It is illegal to interfere with the investigation of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. I mean, yeah. it's in the title. It's on the tin. The Federal Bureau of Investigations, the FBI. You can't just march down and say, nope, nope, not your business. It's very much their business, Mr. Nixon. Very much their business. So, August 29, 1972, Nixon does a U-turn and he admits that overzealous members were who were overly committed to the re-elect, and we're not blaming them, but they were overly committed to the re-elect, may have had involvement in the Watergate. Uh, that's, of course, you turning from his previous position. Yeah. Then, uh, in September 15th, E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy. Ah, Mr. G. Gordon Liddy. G. Gordon Liddy, ex-CIA, ex-Treasury, ex-Bay Pigs, ex-White House official, is the closest thing to a charismatic, larger-than-life nutter you're ever going to meet on this earth. I mean... The infamous, and there's only, I'll give you one anecdote about G. Gordon Liddy that just summarizes him brilliantly. Uh, him, Colson, and Mitchell were in a meeting. Uh, oh no, him, Magruder, and Magruder and Colson were in a meeting. And Magruder says, I wish we could get Jack Anderson off the papers, i.e., Jack Anderson, the journalist. G. Gordon Liddy picks up his gun, walks down the corridor, and screams, I'm going to kill Jack Anderson now. <laughs> And has to be told by McGrew that no, no, it was just a figure of speech, John. Gordon, figure of speech. That, so that's G. Gordon. Anecdote, I think, beautifully summarizes G. Gordon Liddy. A very large in life, very funny person, actually, in many ways, but a complete, you know, not all there. So, 
They, along with the five burglars, are formally indicted uh, by the Watergate grand by the grand jury on the Watergate. October the 10th, 1992. This is another key. And, and you're going to hear me say this. This is a key date in the Watergate scandal because it is. Because the Washington Post and actually Walter Cronkite, who's then the most trusted man in America, rightly, because Walter's a brilliant journalist, they reveal that Watergate was the first of many plots the Republican Party had used. This wasn't, you know, yeah. some small one-off incident. And what you'll later see is the Pentagon Papers scandal at Ellsberg. But yeah, the offensive security plan, which is basically designed to infiltrate the Democratic Party headquarters. I mean, it's all right. There are about six of them, but I remember one of them brilliantly. Uh, this is one of the because I heard this one and I just shook my head in disbelief. They were. <laughs> I say it now and I still can't bring myself to say it. Nixon and the CF, this committee to reelect the president, would pay prostitutes to stand outside the Democratic headquarters. Sorry, the Democratic National Committee, uh, Democratic National Convention, and to lure middlely powerful Democrats into spilling information with them via impressing them because they on the on the charge that you know you know you know they want to impress these women, and then use that to report back to the committee to reelect the president after putting them in compromising yeah. positions. And you're just thinking. Politics has always been dirty. It's not being back. It's always dirty. I mean, it's the infamous thing of, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson bugging Barry Goldwater's plane, where his vice president, Goldwater VP, William Miller, says, obviously, the Goldwater plan will lead to the abolition of Social Security. So that on a plane in total confidence. The next day on billboards, William Miller wants to abolish Social Security. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> which of course is that uh, is political, which of course is like in this country saying you want to abolish the nurses. It, it's political suicide in America to say you want to dismantle the social security system, and that was posted around. I mean, the infamously, where did the Daisy ad come from? The Daisy ad came from a microphone conversation on Barry Goldwater's room, where Barry Goldwater said, "I'd like to go and uh, go and throw one, love one in the Krem in the men's room of the Kremlin." Mm. Now, Goldwater, six days before the election, figured out that he was being bugged and still said, what's the difference? Would they expect anything less of the man? <laughs> so <laughs> my point is, my point is, bugging and taping and messing around has always been part of politics, always been part of American politics. I mean, as for dirty tricks, can I remember that Harry Truman once said about the Republican Party the Republicans' main desire is to stick a pitch a pitchfork in the throat of every farmer in the country, you know. Yeah, that that's not entirely correct. It's stick a pick. It was, yeah, I mean, I, I may paraphrase. I may paraphrase. I think it was stick a pitchfork in the something of every farmer in the country. I mean, Richard Nixon called Adlai Stevenson a card a card carrying communist UN coddling socialist something else. Uh, you know. And Stevenson was actually a very skilled diplomat, so I don't know what the hell he was on about that, Nixon, but fair enough. Um, but Nixon did have a good record, in my view. And on November, and, and everyone who hates Nixon can never get past this one point. November 7th, 1972, Richard Nixon wins 49 of the 50 states, 60.7% of the vote. He wins re-election on a 
thumping, thumping landslide. We keep the Congress. That's good news. We still keep the Congress. We can still make their lives miserable from the Congress. But Nixon wins 49 of the 50 states. Now, why? Now, Nixon, of course, has been ostracized by history as, you know, I'm not a crook and all these things. But let me just read to you the achievements of the man. And this will explain to you why I'm a passionate Richard Nixon supporter. Here is why. Okay, and I'm now going to do the Dowd Khan audio version of my book. So you get, you get an audio extract from the What, the what If <laughs> book. Okay, so January 20th, 1973, Richard Nixon has won with 60.7% of the vote, 49 states and 521 electoral votes. Every 521 electoral votes. Every state of Massachusetts and D.C. voted for Nixon. Anecdote. Why, Gore Vidal was famously asked, why uh, did Massachusetts vote for McGovern when every other state voted for Nixon? And, and Vidal goes, well, since the birth of the nation, Massachusetts has been the most corrupt state in the union, and you know a crook when you see one. <laughs> that was Gore's nation for why Massachusetts did not vote for Nixon. Anyways, so... Get off your phone, man. Unless you're doing your subheadings. In that case, you just I'm doing the sub, subheading. Stay, 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 stay. So, what did Nixon achieve? In the first, the first term, before Watergate, he ended the Vietnam War. He brought the troops home, brought the POWs home. He made peace with China. He created the biggest arms limitation agreement with the Soviet Union and the biggest arms limitation treaty since the Washington Naval Treaty in 1921-2. He ended the draft. He gave votes to 18-year-olds. He desegregated the South. It was 10% desegregated in 1968. It was 70% desegregated by 1974. He created the EPA, the Environmental Protections Agency. He created the Cancer Institute. He ended the gold standard. He brought in price controls. He introduced the biggest, biggest expansion, the biggest increase in Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security spending in its history. He brought in yeah. cost of living adjustments to Social Security, so anyone on Social Security would have their benefits uprated by prices automatically. He cut the Vietnam casualty rate by 99%. He offered deal makings with the, with the North Vietnamese. He created detente yeah. with the Soviets. He created a European foreign policy, becoming very anglophilic. And on top of all that, let's go further. He increased urban spending by 71%, i.e. anti-poverty programs. This whole thing of Nixon was against the great society, complete nonsense. He did that. He had Henry Kissinger advise him on how to reorder the world. He brought Egypt into the, into the free world, which of course led to Anwar Sadat, which led to the Camp David Accords. He brought four yeah. judges on the court, Warren Berger, Lewis Powell, someone else, William Rehnquist. I've always forget the third fellow, but I always remember, but Berger and Powell were fantastic. Oh, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna annoy me now. Who was the third guy he put on the court? List of Supreme Court justices. Will we you know my view on William Rehnquist. Yeah. Uh it's a four-letter word and it ends with T and begins with C. That's my view on William Rehnquist. Not not a very favorable one. He's an absolute racist. And that's not just me. Saying uh, racist as it, I mean, he's provably a racist. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, when really before becoming a judge, William Rehnquist worked for the Republican Party, and he would go when he was in Arizona, 
and he would regularly go up to black voters, demand they recite the constitution or have the police arrest them for voter impersonation. Yeah. That's who we're dealing with. And that man was Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1986 to 2005. I'm looking for the Nixon, the third Nixon justice he appointed. Was it Blackman? It was Blackman. Okay. Henry Blackman, a very good justice. He reordered the court fundamentally. So he did all that. And he and everyone says, well, what about how he's so conservative? He passed everything with democratic votes, like Ronald Reagan did as well. He passed and George H. W. Bush did as well, may I also add. And Dwight Eisenhower did for the five or six years of the presidency. Passed everything with Repub with Democrat votes. And the first of, he was only the second Democrat Republican president then to win two full terms of office in the 20th century. Reagan, of course, preferred. So that's yeah. all Nixon's achievements, which I think merit his re-election, in my view. Of course, yeah. what what finally triggered Nixon to win 72 was October 15th, 1972, Henry Kissinger coming down and saying, we believe the beast is at hand and that all American prisoners would be out and all American soldiers would be out of Vietnam in 60 days. And of course, why is that crucial? What had George McGovern made a key part of his election strategy? Within 90 days, all American soldiers and all American prisoners will be out of the jail and out of the jungle and back home in America where they belong. Yay. So not only, they were doing 90 days, they were thinking 60 days, all American soldiers yeah. out of Vietnam, which which basically, it took the, the it wiped away McGovern. So yeah. Nixon won a thumping landslide, and rightly so, because those achievements are massive. I mean, in my view, the old it's the old joke, isn't it? The old thing is, have five presidents on the wall, who would they be? Roosevelt, Johnson, Clinton, Nixon, Reagan, in that order. Those, I yeah. mean, because of the, actually, no, take Reagan off, put Jimmy Carter on the wall. Those are the four, five presidents I'd have on my wall. Because those are the five presidents I revere the most. I think they're all fantastic. Roosevelt, because he, he saved, he, the New Deal saved capitalism, brought Social Security, welfare, and the unions, and he saved us from fascism. LBJ, because were it not for Vietnam, he'd be the greatest president of all time. Civil rights, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, PBS. Uh, Bill Clinton. Um, beyond abolishing Glass-Steagall, the man did nothing wrong. Full stop. 23 million new jobs, balanced budget, earned income tax credit. And I'm not reading this. This is just coming from my head. I'm, I'm, I'm trained in the Bill Clinton School of Policy, so I have to always recite the Clinton truth. The crime bill, welfare reform, the Brady bill, the earned income tax credit, the uh, deficit, the five four balanced budget, paying down the American national debt, 23 million new jobs, the Gun Control Act, the Dayton Peace Accords, uh, tax cuts since 1981. Uh, you know, shall I go on with the list? You know, it, it was remarkable. 7.7 .7 million people out of poverty when Reagan only got 77,000 people out of poverty. Remarkable president. And of course, being the first Democrat president since Franklin Roosevelt to win two full terms of office. Um, mm. Nixon, well, I refer, just wind back two minutes and listen to me recite, let, let me listen to me recite all his achievements again. And Jimmy Carter, only president who didn't go around starting a war. Yeah. Only president who didn't do arms sales. He created the Department of Education. He got the Camp David Accords. And why do we admire Jimmy Carter? 
because in 1980, during the Iranian hostage crisis, Jimmy Carter would have won the election if he just decided to do, you know, do your Beach Boys song and decided to go bomb Iran. But Jimmy Carter knew if he did that, the hostages would be killed. So he calmly and patiently got a deal with them and got all every hostage camo, not one of them hurt. All 54 hostages returned back to America, not one of them hurt. I mean, Carter has rightly been seen. In New England, I draw some between Jimmy Carter and Gordon Brown. Yeah. So really unpopular when in office, but out of office, oh, they're brilliant, aren't they? They were fantastic <laughs> men. They were decent men. Decent men. Yeah. I mean, famously, who opened up the Carter Library? Do you know? No. Ronald Reagan. Did it? Yeah. 1986. It's on the Reagan Library YouTube channel. It's Reagan opening up the Carter Library. He was telling his speech on why Jimmy Carter's a legend. I mean, everyone knows he's a legend. Anyways, uh, but that's anyway. That's why Nixon is a fan. If Nixon had not done Watergate, he'd have been up probably alongside Franklin Roosevelt as one of the greatest presidents in American history. Maybe, yeah. No, he would be. I mean, the guy. I mean, he'd be with Lincoln and Roosevelt in the brilliance of his administration. I mean, did he have faults? Yes. Kent State, Cambodia. Uh, you know, calling young people a bunch of bums and then for the next day Kent State happens where a bunch of young people are shot by the National Guard. You know, he, he had some faults, but anyone who watches Nixon or listens to Nixon as the guy's a genius. I mean, famously, Google Richard Nixon, the Southern Town Hall and the Michigan Town Hall. That man could handle a, cra- a, a question better than any politician I've seen, apart from one person, Bill Clinton. Mm, yeah. Anyways, but we're not talking about Clinton, we're talking about Nixon. So, have you done this already? Yeah. Right, then please proceed. Okay, so so this is the beginning of 1973, and this is where many people mark the point of the beginning of the end for Nixon, really. Yeah. And um, on January the 8th, 1973, uh, five of the seven defendants plead guilty to, um, to, to the charges they were given. Now, on January 20th, 1973, Richard Nixon is inaugurated for a second term and is the second Republican president in the 20th century to be inaugurated for a second term. Now, the Senate on February 7th, 1973, decided to vote 100 to 100 to zero uh, to establish a committee to investigate Watergate, to investigate the Watergate scandal. Uh, the committee was headed up by North Carolina Conservative Democratic Se- uh, Senator Sam Irvine. Uh, Irvin, sorry. Sam Irvin. He is... It's a very good reason Democrats picked Sam Irvin. He was the second most right-wing senator in the United States Senate. Uh-huh. He voted against Medicare, Medicaid, civil rights, PBS, all the <laughs> shebang. He was more right-wing than right-wing people were right-wing, but he was a Democrat, and he was 74. And the chance of him being nominated by the Democratic Party for running for president is about the same chance of me being nominated by the Democratic Party for running for president. None. <laughs> So they couldn't okay. say there's no political posturing. They're picking one of the the second most right wing Democrat, only to the right left of John Stennis, mm. um, who comes part of this. But yeah, Irvin had to. Irvin was a very good pick actually. Yeah, um, yeah. So then on on then on March seventeenth, nineteen seventy three, the uh, the, the contamination uh, the, the containment strategy of the White House. Breaks as one of the as one of the five burglars uh, on being convicted 
uh, James W. McCord. Right, so left to the judge, uh, John uh, uh, Sarisa? Sarisa? Sarika. 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 Sarika saying there was a political pressure applied to the defendants to plead guilty and remain silent. And whilst he goes on to say that, that, that this was not, not a CIA operation and that many committed uh, perjury, but it was the letter that which began to uh, turn suspicion to the Nixon White House. Yeah, and uh, do, you, do you want me to carry on, Dad? Mm hmm Yeah, yeah. So and there was, and then so then on March twenty first, I'm just I'm just telling a friend of mine, uh, what is the centrist definition of affirmative action? Uh, <laughs> and then on March twenty first, nineteen seventy three, John W. Dean, the White House Counsel, tells Nixon there is a cancer on his presidency. He also told Nixon keeping the burglars silent would cost him one million dollars. And Nixon this is said, key. You... This is so... "Yeah, go on, go on, finish it, finish it." And, 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 and then Nixon said, "You want a million dollars? I know where it can be get. Uh, it can be gotten." Right, this and is key. You explain why it's key, Dad. You explain why it's key. Yeah, uh, where have them? Right. So, uh, yes. Okay. By the way, the centrist definition of affirmative action for those people who are eager to know. Is not where you favour one a less qualified person over a more qualified person because less qualified person is race or gender. It's in a sense of where you pr give you go up to the minorities of gen of women and and, and African minorities and for the disabled and tell them of opportunities they may not have been aware that existed and programs they don't even aware that existed that could help them into uh, university or the, that specific job. So rather than discriminating against someone of higher skill. You simply make opportunities aware to that person of, oh, there's this specific program we have to get into mental services with the police, and you help them get onto it. That's yeah. the centrist definition of affirmative action. No, I'm not going to tell you what that originated from. I think there are certain people that, if, if I tell where it originated from, are probably going to come down to my house and hit me. Yeah. Yes. Is that, and, is that, uh, an, is that a very interesting definition? I think it's a very interesting definition, Dad, to be fair, yeah. You promote opportunity people, you help them get on the programme, but you don't discriminate against people for being low-skilled or high-skilled. You simply just get them... That's basically basically what you do. So if there's a, a white person of higher skill than African-American of lower skill, you take white person of higher skill, but then you make clear to the African-American of lower skill, here's a way we can make you higher-skilled. Yeah. So then when they enter on the programme, they have higher skills and they can go on the same scheme of merit. But that way, no one's yep. left behind. You fix both problems. See, we are going to have one day called the complex centrist philosophy. You know, and you can subhead it why Dowd Khan is a political schizophrenic. <laughs> okay, it came from Robert Bork. All right, it came from Robert Bork. That was it, it, his philosophy, and I've put a bit more left spin on it. That's where it originated from. Now I'm prepared for people to come with their baseball bats and beat me. <laughs> I don't know, you could take ideas from Bork, you silly sergeant, all these things. Um I was re I'm I'm re-watching all the hearings. Bork and Scalia yeah. and Ginsburg. I'm re-watching the hearings because well, because I'm currently a bit depressed. <laughs> I need I need some stimulation up there, right. Um right. So you you got to Sir Rick, no, you got past Sir Rick, didn't you? You up to Dean? Were you up to Dean? Yes, 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 yes. To Dean. Right. So this is the key. This is the reason why Dean is key. He just told Richard Nixon, "We're going to offer him a million dollars, and we're going to pay him a million dollars." And Nixon said, "You want a million dollars? I know where it can be gotten." 
The President of the United States had just agreed to pay off burglars. Yeah. Indicted burglars. <laughs> and it's on tape. And actually, this is a key part of the attack. We're going to get onto the tapes. So that's also a crime. That's also another crime yeah. he committed. Um, and, but yeah, that's the key. So uh, McCord, yes, you said, oh yeah, now why is McCord key? McCord's key for this reason. James W. McCord writes John Sirica a letter, the judge, saying there is political pressure to keep us silent. Yeah. And that some people have pressured us into committing perjury. What that means in plain English, the higher-ups have made us do this. Yeah. And famously, Earl Silbert, who's the chief prosecutor, later hands the investigation over in April 73 to Archie Cox. We'll come on to Archie Cox in a second. But that is the one lawyer Nixon cannot stand. Why? He was Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy's solicitor general. Yes. A liberal, northern, intellectual democrat. Or, as we call them, people who hate Richard Nixon. The people <laughs> who want to look for things. He could go for a restaurant statement and say, does this have anything to do with Nixon's crimes? Let's look at the, like Nixon's crimes. Everyone thinks Ken Starr was bad. And Ken Starr was horrendous. I will mm. brutalise Ken Starr with pleasure. And as much as I love Archie Cox, and I do, I totally understand Republicans' hatred of the man. Not the man himself, because he's an amiable, likeable person. Even Republicans said that. But the man's relentlessness in going up <laughs> on tax evasion, on Cambodia, on Watergate. I mean, and what did Ken Starr do? Well, Ken Starr, being a Republican, of course, takes a brilliant investigation model and says, let's go after a president, first real estate in Arkansas, which is a real threat to national security, real estate in Arkansas in the 80s, and let's go after him for being an adulterer. Yeah. Which, of course, again, is a real threat to national security, a president who can't keep himself to himself. I mean, yeah. just one thing about the Clinton impeachment, which is everyone says, oh, he lied to the country. What did he lie about? The country knew he was a draft-dodging, pot-smoking adulterer, and they voted him twice. Yeah. And Republicans go, what do we tell the children? And those children are today's millennials who know nothing about the scandal and don't care. So the parents, of course, told them nothing about the scandal. Good job. <laughs> I mean, Republicans, Bill Clinton had an affair with Monica and Republicans spent two years making him a disgusting, filthy sex doer. And when they were done yeah. with him, he had an approval rating of 73%. Yes. Now, why? Because Nate was Newt Gingrich, of all people, who people know is a guilty pleasure of mine, is Newt Gingrich. He said, he said exactly how the Republicans should have gone about it. Perjury is a crime. You cannot mm. commit perjury. And anyone who commits a crime should be impeached. Fair. Yeah. Absolutely fair. Rep but Republicans don't have that intelligence. It's morality crusade. What do Democrats do? Democrats did not make it about Nixon. They made it about a crime. They yeah. said paying burglars is a crime. Damaging tapes is a crime. Not going before uh, complying with subpoenas from the Senate and from the courts is a crime. Mocking the special prosecutors is a crime. And they made it about the crimes of Richard Nixon, not about Richard Nixon. 
Because at the start yeah. of 73, Nixon had a 77% approval rating. Why? Because he just ended the Vietnam War in full. So you yeah, couldn't make about that him. That would do it, yeah. They made out the crimes. And what happened? By the time Nixon left, it was 27.2%. That is how you handle it. And actually, the Democrats did not learn that when Trump would Trump. They did not learn that lesson. They did the Republican thinking, which is, let's make a massive hoo-ha about something irrelevant, instead of making about the crimes of the man. Yeah. If they said about Trump, which is when Russia happened, which is conspiring with a foreign power to manipulate the results of an election is treason. That's yeah. it. That's all you had to say, because that is what they did. That's a crime. If they said not accepting the results of a presidential election and getting your supporters to storm the Capitol is treason. That's all they had to do. But no, Democrats said, Democrats were so, in a way, very similar to the Republicans with Bill Clinton, were divided, were blinded by their loathing of the man, for good reason, because mm-hmm. this is the man who said, China loves me because I have a big, big brain, or, you know, I know words, <laughs> I know the best words, or, you know, you know, I mean, the guy's a fucking idiot. Everyone, I mean, I was listening, I've been listening to books about the Trump presidency, Michael Wolf's book, uh, Michael Wolf's Fire and Fury, brilliant book. I was listening to Kayleigh McEnany's book, she was Johnson's press secretary. She's in the Newt Gingrich uh, category now of guilty pleasures of mine that I like listening to. Yeah. Uh, who else in the guilty pleasure look? Bernie, no, Bernie Sanders is not a guilty pleasure. Bernie Sanders is just an eternal pleasure. If you listen to Bernie for more than five minutes and you don't like Bernie Sanders, I urge you, get your head checked. You want to see? I mean, I'll say one more thing. We'll go back to Watergate, which is, do you know George Romney? Yeah. The guy who ran president, Mitt Romney's dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ran president in 1968 against Nixon and he was for Vietnam. So he went to Vietnam and then he became against Vietnam. <laughs> he said, he said, he goes, Governor, you were for Vietnam. Why are you not against Vietnam? He goes, Well, my head was brainwashed by the generals in the for Vietnam. And, and a guy wrote in a column To change George Romney's mind, you would not need to brainwash him. A light rinse would suffice. Because George Romney was actually a very, was actually a fantastic governor in Michigan. Um, I mean, famously because he was also ahead of Ford at one point. And the guy wrote, the guy wrote, uh, the Nash Rambler must have been a very good card because even George Romney couldn't make a mess of it. <laughs> anyway, so Nick, I mean, famously, how did Nixon get the nod? Nixon got the nod because Romney stepped down because he got brainwashed by the generals of Vietnam. Rockefeller didn't run in 68 because he was he had a girlfriend after divorcing his wife. Reagan couldn't run because Reagan had made films with chimpanzees. You cannot be a president with making films with chimpanzees. For God's sake, man. Google Bedtime with Bonzo. That was a Ronald Reagan film made with chimpanzees. Uh, so there was really only one person. It was going to be Richard Nixon. And, as, and by the way, anyway, uh, I really do divert. I'm having a good... Che- this is a cheery episode. <laughs> But not an un, not an uninformative episode, though. No, definitely not. Definitely not. You are, you, no. you are getting you, even though I am rambling on about chimpanzees and all these things, you're still getting your. <laughs> you're still getting your money's worth. You're still getting your money's worth of the anecdotes. You're still getting with the anecdotes. 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, I love I love the Republicans because they're just so bloody stupid. They go, <laughs> we we picked Barry Goldwater. We got absolutely annihilated by Jumbo LBJ. So let's pick another conservative, Nixon. Nixon says, "I will now be a conservative, even though that is what caused you a defeat." Let's go and be that. And Nixon, of course, why? How did Nixon pick Agnew? We'll come on to Agnew in a second. Why did he pick Agnew to be the VP? Because Nixon had seen the way Agnew had handled the press. Yeah, he'd seen the way Agnew had handled the press with such brilliance, and he said, "There's our man." Who was Nixon going to pick beforehand? Everyone doesn't know this. Nelson Rockefeller. And who was Ted Agnew before he became conservative? General Chairman of Rockefeller for America in 68. <laughs> he was the chairman of the Rockefeller campaign. I mean, famously, Agnew is the man who uh, went to, it was the governor of Maryland, and he went to a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan with a press there, and he read them all their names and said, you are now all under arrest for being hateful and for being murderers and for being pillagers, and you are now going to be arrested. Had all the members of the Ku Klux Klan in Maryland arrested in a meeting, and then three days later, gets the black power people in the room, reads the names, and goes, If I'm willing to condemn, reads the names of all the white Ku Klux Klan people who had arrested, and then goes, So if I'm willing to arrest these people, why should I arrest you too? And they all, and then Agnew went, I'm not going to arrest any of you because you're all good people, but you need to, like, and I quote in verbatim, stop the fucking rioting. <laughs> now, so he was paid, and Agnew actually was a fantastic campaign. I mean, Agnew became more conservative over time, more conservative over time, not less conservative. If my view, if Ted Agnew had stayed as, that, as the Maryland liberal, who supported the Great Society, civil rights, and, and pretty much the New Deal with conservatism, he would be a fantastic president because he had the wit and the charisma to be president. But he went to the right. And as, as, as a great man says, if you go to the left, people will pity you. If you go to the right, people will think you're insane. Yeah. It's only the middle. It's, and who came that quote? Nelson Rockefeller, my favourite person on the earth. A man who was once heckled by a protester and just did this. <laughs> On national television, he just did that to a protester. I mean, famously, <laughs> someone, I think it was October 28th in 1980, and someone was heckling Reagan, and Reagan just goes, oh, shut up. <laughs> oh, shut up. But were just swearing at <laughs> Honestly. Okay. Um, let's get back onto the facts now. Yes, let's. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll, I've got to make up lost ground, James. <laughs> yeah, go on then. All I've done this, all I've done this episode is talk about Taylor Swift, E. Howard Hunt, Nixon's <laughs> achievements, and anecdotes from the sixties in America. So I've got, I've got to get back on the content now. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise you'll have this will be like another one of your episodes where you're stronger than me, which is. And I don't mind that because it's just a statement of intention, statement of fact, quite frankly. Uh, but oh, by the way, actually, just before we get on back to that, Saturday the first of July, are you going to that hostings? Uh oh, uh, Phil phoned me today, and he yeah. said he would. He said something about rather doing it on an email than doing it in something. 
Do you think so? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, what we'll he said to me. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it in the debrief. We'll talk about it in the debrief. Because I just got the note today. So if he wants me to do it, I'll just fill it out for no problem at all. No yeah. questions asked. Um. Anyways, back to the point. So March 26, 73, McCord talks to Watergate investigators and he implicates Jeb Magruder as part of the Watergate scandal. Who's he? The general chairman of the committee to re-elect the president. <laughs> the head quite of a... the Nixon. Yeah, quite a big fish. He's quite a big yeah, fish. Yeah. Mm. Don't get um, much bigger fish in the sea than that guy. No, I don't think you do. Uh, so he gets him, and he also replaces John Dean, the White House counsel. He he's part of the scandal too. The White yep. House's chief lawyer is part of. I mean, what I love about that is where they planned the Watergate. It was it was Liddy, it was McCord, it was Magruber, it was Dean, and it was Mitchell. In the office of the Attorney General. <laughs> so that's the place to play. That's the place to put a burglary in the a law officer's office. <laughs> right, April 6, 1973, John Dean begins to cooperate with the uh, prosecutors uh, uh, of, the, of the Watergate. And he's, you know, the old, you know, I want immunity. No, all right, I'll tell you this. I want immunity. No, all right, I'll tell you this. And he tells them something. By the way, he gets a deal with the Senate, where the Senate basically say, tell us everything you know and we'll give you immunity. Uh, yeah. The prosecutors found a way around that deal and put him in prison. And this is where it's funny. He was arrested, put in prison for four months in a complex, in a safe house where they held the mafia. And he was never actually, and he was allowed to go and testify. And from September 1974 to January 1975, he was in prison and then released at four months because he put all his friends, all his co-workers in prison. And I mean, the prosecutor then realised, all right, let's let him be, let him be. Anyways, (laughs) um, so yeah, Dean tells the prosecutor, El Silbert, that the people who did Watergate are the same people that broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Why is that significant? Let's remember, he died actually this week, God rest his soul, the great Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel Ellsberg was a person who worked at the, sec- the Defense Department who copied all the Vietnam-related documents, put, put them in, the pe- in, in, in a file, and released them to the press. Yeah. All eight volumes of it, and it showed how from sixty to seventy, how America totally messed up the Vietnam War. Now, it did not mention Richard Nixon's name once. Guess who was the most upset about the release of the documents? <laughs> Nixon. He, he said, "I think it's time we quit making national heroes out of those who steal secrets and leave them to the newspapers." Very Nixonian. He he was he was very upset about the Pentagon Papers. He tried to get a, 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 an injunction against the New York Times to stop them releasing Pentagon Papers, only for the Supreme Court to say, "No, no, carry on, carry on. First Amendment right, First Amendment. Carry on. Release. We need these documents." And the plumbers broke into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. When you think about that. I mean, it's one thing to break inside the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee, which is horrific, but that's just politicians pissing around each other, right? That's just standard. Breaking into a man's psychiatrist and, and going through the, the shelves and saying, where are the documents? Where are the documents? Go on, we need more documents. Because the question there was, Ellsberg's psychiatrist, was he could not make, Ellsberg surely wasn't his only patient. 
Yeah. <laughs> that is terrifying. I mean, famously, the Senate Watergate Committee was established 100 to nothing, which I find hilarious. You, I, I would say, so you had Strom Thurmond and Teddy Kennedy voting for the same bill. That only happens once in a generation, which is not true, actually. <laughs> Because they were friends, which everyone... Another, another fact that totally blows everyone's minds up. You mean the most, the liberal lion is friends with a man who stood for 24 hours saying why civil rights is a bad thing? How's that possible? But, I mean, we could do something that called Fascinating Bipartisan Friendships. Because I think that would be a very heartwarming also range in the episode. Because you'll find some truly, truly, truly bizarre ones. Like Harry Truman and Herbert Hoover. <laughs> now, Herbert Hoover helped Harry Truman out in '46 with yeah. aid to Germans, uh, children, aid to the German poor, with rationing, basically creating food supply for the Germans. And yeah. then he helped Harry Truman on reorganizing the government. Yeah. And even though Truman used Herbert Hoover in the election as a whipping boy, which basically says, if you vote the Republicans in, you'll get Herbert Hoover's Great Depression. He still made lifelong friends with Herbert Hoover. I mean, when Truman left the White House in fifty in fifty two, uh, Herbert Hoover got Dwight Eisenhower to do the uh, former President's Act, which gave every president a pension, every president secret service, because of course Truman didn't have really have an income. Yeah, that that is. I mean, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon were friends by both men's confessions. John F. Kennedy and Barry Goldwater were friends, which is another one. Uh, Bobby Kennedy and Joseph McCarthy were friends. Yeah. Bobby Kennedy was Joe McCarthy's right hand man on the right on the McCarthy on the McCarthy uh, witch hunt. Really? Yeah. Joe Kennedy got Bobby Kennedy on the McCarthy committee to go around. You know, uh, anyone is a communist. I want to say a communist. Someone who's not me. They're communists now. Oh, that's a easy joke. Okay, okay. Um, Robert, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is an interesting one. I'll, and I'll build up to the substantive. Because I know, look, I'm not going to for three weeks. And I've, and I've built my American Reserve knowledge again. And I'm keen to let it all out. Not this one. This one we don't do week by week episodes. I become giddy. Uh, who was, you know, the first politician Ronald Reagan saw. Sorry, the first politician that visited Ronald Reagan after he was shot. And they had a hey. three-hour conversation. What? Tip O'Neill. Really? The Liberal Speaker from Massachusetts. It, it's a long one. It's, it's a very, very long list. Of, I mean, famously, uh, Dan Inouye, who was a Democrat senator from Hawaii, and Bob Dole were part were both war veterans who were recovering from injuries at the Percy Jones General Hospital. And I love, this is why I love Bob Dole. Bob Dole then created the Percy Jones General Caucus where it was him, Dan in a way, and every time you know, the Percy Jones Hospital would come up, the other would just do a proxy. They became lifelong friends. Bob Dole and George McGovern were friends. Yeah. Nixon was actually, as Tip O'Neill later said, was the smartest bipartisan in, in, in the Congress. He said Nixon was playing more deal-making cards than anyone in the world until he came back as president and he was less, you know, he said he was less emollient as president. But Russell Long famously said, and he was a Democrat from Louisiana, and I love Russell Long, because Russell Long, first of all, knew where knew where all the commas were in the tax code, not just the actual tax code. He knew where the commas were. He knew, like, that. But Long 
in, I mean, famously, a man wrote about Russell Wong. He said, from 1952 to 1986, not one piece of fiscal or domestic policy passed without Russell Wong writing it, which is true. Um, he would always use the tax code to get social agendas passed, like anti-poverty programs, child benefits, etc. And he said Nixon, as president, was very good. Anyways, but that's for another day. I yeah. really am now digressing too far. I'm informing you all, but I'm digressing. But that is my style. Um, yes, it is your style, Dad. This is my style. No one goes underinformed with me, but we don't, we don't stick to the point. <laughs> all right, so Nixon, uh, yes, Nixon, April 17, 1963, Nixon said in public, in a press conference, all White House staff will testify before the stupid, before the White the Senate Watergate Committee, and no one of his lot will receive immunity. Yeah. All White House staff includes the President of the United States. Mm hmm. <laughs> Oh, words fail me. Yeah. Uh, April 19th, Jen McGruber decides to go to the committee and spill the whole thing, saying how Mitchell and Dean and the Gordon lady were all part of the plot. L oh, yeah, this is the interesting part. April 27th, L. Patrick Gray resigns as director of the FBI. Why is this significant? Because William Ruckelshaus replaces him. Who, what William Ruckelshaus is significant? I hear nobody asked. He later becomes the Deputy Attorney General, July 73. That name is going to become very significant very shortly. Yeah. And then April 30th, what happens? Nixon fires his two closest friends, Bob Holman and John Ehrlichman. <laughs> Why? What does that achieve precisely? I mean, Holman went because he was scared that Nixon was going to resign. And Ehrlichman went because he basically used the skills to explain how he wished he didn't wake up in the morning, all these things. And Dean, of course, was fired immediately by his treason, apparently. Um, but yeah, he finished in the broadcast that, late that night, justice must be pursued no matter who's involved. And that justice must be real, not transparent. There can be no whitewash. Yes. Yeah. I mean... Justice must be pursued no matter who's involved. Are you seriously trying to dig your own grave? <laughs> Anyways, come on, let's get on to Mr. John Dean. Mr. Yeah, John so, W. So, Dean III. Yeah, so, so John Dean, so on May 14th, uh, Dean did a walk, uh, a walk interview with the press where he said uh, there was no report last August and saying he couldn't bring down the president. Then on May 17th, uh, uh, 1973, the Senate Watergate hearing began live, and on May 18th, uh, McCord uh, told uh, told all uh, he knew in the public, no notably how political pressures was conveyed to him from the White House in January 1973, and that mm. if he went to president, if any, and if he went to the president, he'd receive financial aid and a job when he got out. The very next day, um, Archibald Archibald Cox what was yeah. the was a solicitor general for both President Kennedy and Johnson, is appointed officially as a special prosecutor in the Watergate case. Now, on uh, June 3rd, 1973, Dean tells the investigators he discussed the cover-up with President Nixon at least 35 times. And then 22 days later, on the, June 5th, 
uh, June twenty fifth. Sorry, uh, Dean does the very uh, does the very first public testimony to the Watergate committee and gives the full rundown of names, dates, and anecdotes, and that President Nixon knowingly participated in the cover up. He also claimed that he did not know anything about Watergate's break-in until June 17, 1972, when it happened, and also that how there was a development of the enemies list. Um, ah, so... the enemies list. Anecdote. So Daniel Shaw of the Columbia Broadcasting Systems, known to everyone else as CBS, decided to read out the enemies list. In reading it out, he said, Number 24, Daniel Shaw of the Columbia Broadcasting Systems, described here as a real media enemy. On live TV, he read out his own name on the enemy's list. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's a, nothing not yet about enemy's list. Very good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the investigation. So then July 13th, 1973, Alexander Butterfield broke open the investigation even more by saying there was listening devices in the Oval Office which blew the investigation wide open. Um, and then obviously this obviously generated a response from Nixon. So then on July 18th, 1973, Nixon decided to order the disconnection of the White House taping system. And then July 20th, 1973, uh, sorry, tapping system, not tape. Is it tapping system or taping system? Taping, taping. Uh, taping system. And then July 20th, 1973, Nixon arrives back from uh, the White House after fight it, fighting viral pneumonia and says, outside the White House, he's not resigning. And as he puts it, let others, uh, let others wallow in Watergate. We're going to carry on with the job. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, in, so then July 23rd, three days later, uh, in 1973, Nixon openly refuses to allow Archie Cox, the special prosecutor, to get access to tapes. And he sends a letter to Sam Irvine, who mocks it, saying, So the president yeah. says he. Yes. So, okay. So, <laughs> he does. Chairman Irvin, Chairman Irvin is on national television. He does this hilariously. Uh, so he tells Archie Cox, We're not giving you the tapes. He then lets Sam Irvine going, I've listened to the tapes, I've heard them. But other people can't hear them unless they, if in case they draw different conclusions than me. And Sam <laughs> Irvin reads out the whole letter and says, so the president is saying that though he's heard the tapes, though he's listened to the tapes, no one else can because they may not get the same conclusion as the president does. And then one goes, goes, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And he goes, he goes on to say, now this shows how right-wing Sam Irvin is. He says, I used to think that the Civil War was the greatest tragedy. I don't anymore. Watergate is. And that's because in the Civil War, both sides had good, uh, done good things. No, both sides had shown valiant, courageous actions. Yeah. Does that show how right-wing Sam Irvin is? It does. It really does. Yes. I mean, actually, I've got a funny anecdote about the Civil War for you. Um, Go on. Uh, the, the Northerners used to wear blue shirts and the Southerners used to wear grey trousers. And the man uh, and the man once walked out wearing blue, a blue shirt and grey trousers and both Northern and Southern men shot him from both sides. <laughs> oh, that, to be fair, I think that was the best option. Whose side was he actually on? Exactly. No one knows. <laughs> He, suspect, he came from Illinois, so I suspect he's not, he was a northerner. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they still shot him from both sides. 
Oh yeah, that's what I write. I mean, Sam Erdin famously chaired the infamous debate on firing line. The Panama Canal Treaty should be accepted between two natural mod- middle of the road thinkers, William F. Buckley Jr. and Ronald Reagan. Mm. Now, you only think that's a bad debate, which it wasn't. I know it wasn't, because I've listened to the whole two hours of it. It's a very informed debate. It's a very informed debate. You have right winger or right winger, which is more interesting person if you're on the Panama Canal Treaty. But they're both debating the opposite views. Yeah. Buckley and Buchanan and so was Zimwalt. Admiral Bud Zimwalt were debating for Panama Canal, which is the Jimmy Carter Treaty, and Reagan and the two other people, George, oh yeah, George Will. Oh, George Will. George Will summarizes him by one quote. Without Buckley, no national review. Without no national review, no Goldwater Revolution. Without the Goldwater Revolution, no Reagan. Sorry, no concern to take over the, of the Republican Party. Without that, no Reagan. Without no, no Reagan, we wouldn't have won the Cold War. Therefore, Bill Buckley won the Cold War. Mm. That's George Will for you. The man who famous about the about the hostages, Ronald Reagan should have been, should have been hard and simply forgotten about them. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. I mean, the one scandal I will not go after Reagan for is Iran-Contra. I won't go after him on Iran-Contra for one reason. Yes, funding Nicaraguan Sandinistas is a shit idea. Of course, it's a silly idea. But, you're, and, and I'm not going to mention that's the Contra part, but for the Iran part, American hostages are being tortured in Iran. What are you going to do? Are you going to just leave them there? No. Yeah. You, you do whatever it takes to get them out, and therefore you're vulnerable. But using the profits of the arms sales to go fund the Sandinistas, violating the law, not a good idea. Don't do it. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, that's a stupid idea. Anyways, um, yes, yeah, so Sam Irvin, yes, yeah, so <laughs> the president wants the levitate, but he will not let anyone else hear them unless they draw a different conclusion. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyways, keep going, keep going. Yeah. So now in the in now there's a bit of a gap between July and October. So then in October, vice presidents were basically talked about because this was in October. Agnew, Agnew, yeah. Yeah, in well, in, in exactly in, uh, October 10th, 1973. Well, no, 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 two things about Anecdote, two things about Agnew. Agnew, James Bacon, you're James Bacon, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great James Bacon. Ronald Reagan, Secretary, uh, Chief of Staff, Treasury Secretary, and then George Bush, Secretary of State. He was at a gas station about 2003, I think this was, and a man looked at him very concernedly and then came up to Baker that distance, face and said, uh, You're Agnew, aren't you? <laughs> 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 and he was Baker later said, Agnew, Agnew's been dead for 10 years. <laughs> well, um, second, of course, is that Spiro Agnew name is an acronym for an absolutely disgusting phrase. Is it? Yep. Well, I don't, okay. I'll say but, the clean, uh... I'll say the clean version of it, and most people with brain cells will get the, the, the filthy version of it. Grow an old chap. No, don't get it. All right, James. I want the the people the people who understand that will know exactly what I'm referring to, which is the part where urine comes out of your body. Oh, okay. Yeah, John. That came from John Oliver, by the way. Oh, right, okay. 
Okay, well, a- anyway. Well, yeah, uh, Agnew, Agnew, uh, one of my Agnew ones. So, Agnew, 1970, 19th centorial race, with, uh, when James Buckley became senator, it was Buckley, it was Ottomanager, and it was Charles Goodell. Mm. Goodell was Republican, Ottomanager, Democrat. Buckley was the Conservative Party in New York. And yes, James L. Buckley won. A Conservative took over Bobby Kennedy's seat. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And not conservative Republican. You know, the Conservative Party of New York won the seat. And Agnew, when Vice President, gave a speech for Buckley, calling Charles Goodell a very, very liberal Republican, the Christine Jordanson of the Republican Party. It was Christine Jordanson, I know what I've. The first tranny, the first transgender woman in America. Really? So when politicians talk about how we've gaslighting transgender issues, Pharaoh Agnew was the best to do it. <laughs> well, anyway, so then, yeah, so as so then in October 10th, 1973, Vice President Spiro Agnew had resigned as Vice President mm. uh, of the why United States. Resi- why did because, he resign? Because of taking bribes as Governor of Maryland as, and as well, Vice President. Of course, of course, but why did he resign? Because he b- got bribed. He resigned because he was told if he resigned, he would not go to prison. Oh, really? The classic Mr. President, oh, here's the presidential pardon. That's the, No, 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 no. The prosecutor did deal with him. Oh, the prosecutor did deal with him. Yeah, where instead of instead of being found guilty for bribery and money laundering, he would resign the vice presidency, plead guilty to tax evasion, receive a misdemeanor, a $100,000 fine, and be done with it. Oh. Oh, let's do it. It's, it's, yeah. Rather than it's in prison the next 22 years of his life. Yeah, he, he got a good deal there, didn't he? Yeah. Um, then, and then two days later, House Minority Leader uh, Gerald Ford was nominated yeah. as vice president. Uh, this, was a, this, was an, this was a pretty good idea, to be fair. And, uh, Absolutely and... spot on. If this is the one person you'd pick to unify the country, Jerry Ford. I'm going to read you a quote. And oh, no. you're going to hear the quote, and you're going to guess who the quote came from. Sugar. I've only sworn once in this episode, so it's quite an miracle for me. Normally, old potty mouth can't restrain himself. Mm. Well, doubt. Nope, that's a, that's a screenshot of Newt Gingrich's new book that I was sending to Harry. March <laughs> to the Majority. Which every person on the left should give that a listen to. Anyone on the left, give that a listen to. Because it talks about not about the policy. Well, it's not about the policy. You have to cringe through that. We talk about the strategy of how you turn an, a long-time minority party into the permanent majority. Very good book, March to the Majority. Well worth a listen. And uh, for balance, for balance, it's okay to be angry about capitalism by Bernie Sanders. It's the best book I've read this year. Actually, no, that's not true. But What Can I Do by Alistair Campbell is the best book of all time. Uh, followed by that is Go Big by Ed Miliband. So you've got your balance now, you bloody BBC biased people. <laughs> uh, I'm finding the quote. I'm finding the quote. Give me two seconds. Uh, oh, of course I deleted the screenshot. I can't delete the screenshot. No, I'm not. Is it there? Yeah, this. Okay. This was somebody in 1976 talking about Jerry Ford. 
right? Yeah. Uh, yes, he's a politician, and yes, he was a very senior politician, very distinguished politician. Uh, I have a confession to make. Gerald Ford and Betty came to the Congress in the 81st Congress when Muriel and I came into the Congress, and I've known them for years, and I personally like them. We are really good friends. I mean this sincerely. He's a very decent and good and nice man. He's the kind of fellow you'd like to have for a friend. Do you know who said that? Who? Hubert Humphrey. What? As <laughs> Lyndon Johnson's liberal vice president. <laughs> the man of 1948 got the, the Southern delegates to walk out of the Democratic Convention for saying it's time for the Democratic Party to come out of this, uh, the kegel of states, right, in the bright light, and to walk into the bright sunlight of human rights. He was friends with Jerry Ford from 1948 till Hubert Humphrey died in 1978. Wow. <laughs> Ford famously told, I think he was told Cheney this, that he said, to, he said, Cheney asked him privately, he goes, do you think Jimmy Carter can beat you? And he said, no. He said, do you think Steve Jackson can beat you? He goes, no. He said, do you think George Wallace can beat you? And he said, no, definitely not. So he says, who can beat you, Mr. President? He goes, simple, Hubert. He said, He's a, he's a liberal without all the negative practice. <laughs> he, he said he's a liberal who lives in reality and earth. And he said, that's the short supply. He loves Hubert. But yes, Hubert was very good friends with Jerry Ford. And Jerry Ford was a very big fan of Hubert Humphrey. So that explains who Gerald Ford is. He had everybody got on with the man. I mean... Was he, was he the only president ever not to be elected? Yeah. He was literally appointed president. At least, at least in the twentieth century, there may have been some obscure fellow in the eighteen hundreds, but in the twentieth century, modern day Ford, yeah, yeah, definitely in the, in the last since nineteen hundred, he is the only president to be, to be president and vice president without being elected, which is of course, James, I'm waiting for you to quit it back at me. But that's unconstitutional. I thought you were going to say no. Uh, I thought you were going to say I presume that's how you want to be appointed. <laughs> Well, to be fair, I, I'm I'm just thinking how 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 you um how, how you usually usually comment on George Bush. Uh, at least he oh, did an election. God. At least he did an election. <laughs> he was anointed by the Supreme Court, most illegally by the Supreme Court, and then rigged Ohio. Jerry Ford, on the other hand, won 15 elections for his house seat in Michigan, hardly a Republican state. Mm -hmm. Fifteen times he won. But didn't win the election. No, well, look, he came out of the convention 37 points behind. He lost by two. He should have won he, by two. Well, he should have. No, he shouldn't have. Jimmy Carr was a better president. But the fact is, anything about Ford was, did you know, 34% is the exact figure of conservatives that vote for Jimmy Carter and the exact figure of liberals that vote for Gerald Ford in 1926. Oh, that's interesting. 34%. One third. Of just so yeah, just over one third of conservatives and liberals voted for the opposite party, which is very interesting. And actually, in the seventy-six election, fifty percent of women and fifty percent of men and fought voted for Jimmy Carter, and forty-eight percent of men and women voted for Gerald Ford. Oh, okay. Yes, is the exact same percentage as Gerald Ford, and the exact percentage of seventy-six, fifty point one Carter, forty-eight point one Ford. 
some interesting nastophology for you. <laughs> uh, but yes, that is, if you want to pick anybody to be vice president, you know, by the country, Jerry Ford's the man. Right. Yeah. So, October 15, 1963, Nixon makes the most ludicrous offer in history, the Stennis proposal. This is the, I can't believe I'm saying this, this is the idea to get Senator John Stennis, you can still, I've been, my audio's been clear right throughout the last hour, isn't it? Sorry? My audio's been clear throughout the last hour, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So John Stennis, the Democrat senator from Mississippi, who was, by the 74, hard of hearing, had been shot and needed to take medication for his wounds, Nixon wanted him, and was a Nixon loyalist, because he was from Mississippi, and he was a Democrat from Mississippi, we know how those type of people work, he wanted him to go into a room and listen to the tapes and to write his report of the tapes and then for that to be submitted to the courts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a partially deaf, ill conservative old man <laughs> listening to about 30 hours of tape recordings. <laughs> Anyone thinks politics has now got some dumbos in society? No, 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 no. It's always been a, we've always had the dumbos. <laughs> and who came with that idea? I love that idea. Do you know who came with that idea? Who? Nixon's chief lawyer, Fred Bazart. <laughs> the man defending Nixon from criminal prosecution came up with an idea that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so that was swiftly rejected, as Archie Cox called it ridiculous in every sense. Yeah, well, rightly so. Rightly so. And then on the evening of 20th October, Archie Cox was told by the president, stop going to the courts for the tapes. Archie Cox does a press conference where he basically says, since the president is ignoring the courts, I'm going to ignore the president. What can he do? <laughs> and there's a whole press conference about how we need these tapes. The tapes are key. Let's get the tapes. And what happens? This is what happens. That night, Saturday, 20, over 20, October 20th, 1973, Nixon gets the Attorney General of the United States, Elliot Richardson, and demands he fires Cox. Richardson says no. The President makes Richard, Richardson resign. He then gets Deputy Attorney General William Rucklehouse to fire Cox. Rucklehouse refuses. The President immediately fires William Rucklehouse. He then gets Solicitor General Robert Bork into coming. Bork accepts to fire Rickles, uh, Bork Cox. Bork then threatens to resign immediately as acting attorney general. <laughs> I would he's really not to resign because that, that would then they have to go into the then they have to go into the Department of Justice and say who would like the attorney general and so we can find somebody. Come on, who wants the attorney general? So that becomes <laughs> who the locks up the attorney. <laughs> who wants the attorney general? We, we I know why you did it. I know. We fired the, We just fired the attorney general. We fired the deputy attorney general and the solicitor general. Was resigned. So let's get you three smart asses and put you inside these roles, please. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but that was that was the Saturday Night Massacre, and everyone just thought, "Holy shit! He's just fired the special prosecutor. He's attorney general and he's deputy attorney general. How do you bring this man to justice?" Yeah. Which is a very good point. Since he could just bring the whole thing to an end. Yeah. And 
October 23rd, 1993. Nixon says he'll turn over some of the tapes to Zurica. And this is what I love about the Democrats. November 1st, 1973. The Democrats reappoint a special prosecutor, conservative Texas Democrat Leon Jaworski. Obviously, the Nixon lot had not figured out that since the Senate appointed the prosecutor, the Senate could just reappoint another prosecutor. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, Jaworski famously says, uh, I'll follow the evidence wherever, wherever it leads. And actually, he tells um, General Alexander Haig, who was Nixon's chief of staff, the president is going to be a criminal lawyer. A criminal lawyer? Criminal lawyer. Ooh, mm. these, ooh it's very serious. Mm. Ooh, he's in trouble. So, he is indeed. So then Nixon, next week, says he's not going to resign. Then November 17th, the infamous moment. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned every penny I've got. That clip, that quote, is seared into everyone's minds. Yeah. If people don't know Richard Nixon for anything, it's I no, it's I'm not a crook. Yeah, that is true. November 17th, 1973. That's where the infamous quote of I'm not a crook happened. 21st, 1973, Fred Bizarre. <laughs> Fred Bazaar, the great great smart ass, decided to admit that the tapes were damaged. <laughs> the tapes they handed over to the grand jury on Watergate had been damaged. He, he, uh, he, he's some next level idiot. Isn't he? he is, as we'd say, the village idiot of the lawyers <laughs> community. He is a blithering imbecile. He just admitted, because he, he said there has been a tone on five moments of the tapes. And no audio from the tone. What that means in plain English, they erased the words. They erased <laughs> the words of the bits they didn't like. And they later found out they said it was a mistake. It was a mistake. It was done five conveniently separate times. Um, then, of course, Jerry Ford is confirmed as vice president. Get the count here. 92 to 3 in the Senate. And 387 yeah. to 35 in the House. That shows how light Jerry Ford is. And actually, who were the three that didn't vote for Ford? Jesse Helms, Jim Buckley, <laughs> James Buckley, and John Stennis. <laughs> so you can see who some people who irritate Jerry Ford here. Yes. Conservative, which is good, as anyone who irritates the, the hard right is a friend of Dowd Khan. But the second rule, you have to irritate the hard left too. Basically, <laughs> you have to be the opposite of Mussolini. Yes. And with that, do not go and put laxatives in your opponent's drinks and, you know, go speed in the streets and all these things that Mussolini did. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, you shouldn't right. do that. No, you couldn't do that. The Swallow Revenant would try. She probably already has. Yeah, okay. So, uh... um, <coughs> okay, Okay. January 15th, 1994, let's begin with John Sirica. Oh, yes, it's all the damage tapes. Do you, do, you, do you want me to talk about this now, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so on January 15th, the independent uh, the independent examination panel appointed John Sir Surica. Uh, uh, the panel concluded that there's a deliberate tampering, as there were five separate uh, erasers, erasers or whatever. 
Yeah, so on January uh, 28th, uh, 1974, Nixon, uh, Nixon's aide, uh, Herbert Porter, pleaded guilty to perjury. And on, yeah. 30th, and on the 30th of January, 1974, as Nixon put it to the State of the Union, I want you to know I have no intention of ever walking away from the job people elected me to do. And then February 2nd, 1974, the House voted 410 to 4 uh, to give the Judiciary Committee total and absolute power to uh, find if there's any ground to impeach the President of the United States. The second time in 100 years. The second time in 100 years, exactly. And then, so, Nixon, so there are some charges made to Nixon around here. So, uh, him and his staff, that is. And uh, March on March 1st, 1974, Richard Nixon is formally made an on. An, un, an unindicted uh, cons- and conspirator. And on March 4th, 1974... Unindicted? What? Unindicted. What unindicted. It's spelled dieted wrong. What have it? Is that a scene undicted, is that? Unindicted, yes. Where is the scene undicted? It, listen, if it was unindicted, it wouldn't have the second N. What? Or... Oh, no, it would. Oh no, it would, yeah. Yeah. Unindicted. Alright, fine, I'll take the C out then. Thank you. Leo, unindicted. It's definitely got a C. That's not yes. Are you sure it's got a C? Do you know yes. what? I'm Googling it. this dog. Don't we have di- don't we sell diocese with a C? Oh, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, it, is, it is with a C. Yeah, you remember the diocese? These spell diocese with a C. Mm, yeah, I guess so. Dieted. Almost dieted, then. Yeah. Because I know what you're thinking, because it's like you're dated. You know what I'm dated? D A T D A T. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. Which is, yeah, that's fair dues. That's fair dues. Oh, well, whatever. Unindicted, there we go. Uh, conspirator. And then on March 4th, 1974. Are you taking the CR? Sorry? No, you, you've taken the CR for the notes, haven't you? No, 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 no. The C's still there, Doug. Would it just help if I just got rid of it? Uh, <laughs> the word's just gone. Uh, <laughs> Unindicted conspirator. And on March 4th, 1974, the inner circle of John Mitchell, Bob Har- uh, Har- 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 Haldeman, Haldeman, and- Haldeman. Alderman, yeah, sorry. Uh, John uh, 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 Ellickman, Charles Colson Gordon, uh, uh, Charles Colson, Gordon uh, Stratton, Robert and Kenneth Parkinson are all formally indicted. Oh, yeah. I guess so, yeah. Indicted, yeah. And then comes the infamous press conference where Nixon's asked, do you think perjury and obstruction of justice can form an impeachable event? How does Nixon answer it? Well, I've stopped well, beating my wife. Well, on, on March, well, on March 6, 1974, Nixon in a press conference asked if he thought perjury or obstruction of justice and conspiracy would be serious enough offence to demerit, uh, to, de- uh, to merit an impeachment. And, and Nixon replied, well, I've also got to quit beating my wife. Of course, the crime of perjury is a serious crime and obstruction of justice is a serious crime and an impeachable offence. And I don't expect the House to find me guilty of these crimes. On the narrow definition, it is an inaccurate because it is the constitutional view, and even Senator Irvin agrees, and if a Senator Irvin agrees, it must be the right one. Which is basically, like Senator Donald Trump agrees, it must be the right one. 
<laughs> no, because no, who's, who's Senator Irving? Sam Irving. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Chairman of the committee. So he's saying, Senator Irving agrees. Now, let's look at the first part of the thing. Why is that Valerie Giggle suddenly? Because Nixon actually did beat his wife. <laughs> <laughs> did he actually? Yeah, still 62. And he just admitted it to the public. The night he lost the election in 62 for the governor of California, he nearly beat his wife to death. And he, and he just admitted that to the public. No, it, it's, a, it's an old speaker phrase. I mean, famously, Jeffrey Cox made that same joke in Parliament 2019 during the Brexit debates. Yeah. Uh, he said, I, I, Boris Johnson did as well, Jeremy Paxton once. He said, I, I'm fed up these, you know, when did you stop beating your wife questions? <laughs> it seems that the aristocracy are obsessed with using that stupid, ridiculous phrase. Look, I'm well-versed in phraseology. I don't know what the heck that means in the context. But the border point, it was just the border point, which is Sam Irving, what is Nixon doing? making a joke there, you know, uh, it's Chairman Irving agrees that it must be the right one. These admitted, perjury and obstruction justice are impeachable offences. You'll find yeah. that significant in a second. So, keep going. Oh, yeah, so, and, um, and then Matt, and that's the on March 18th, 1974, Judge uh, Sirica ordered the grand jury report to the House Judiciary Committee. Now, and then, and then there, were, and then between March 18th and April 5th, uh, there was a there was a brief pause. But then on April 5th, 1974, Dwight Cha- uh, uh, Chapin, Nixon's proverbial Chapin, gate- Chapin. Chapin, sorry, Nixon uh, Nixon's proverbial uh, gatekeeper was convicted of lying to the grand jury. And on April 7th, 1974, Republican Lieutenant Governor of California, Ed uh, Rinecki, was was indicted on three charges of perjury to the Super Committee. This is funny when you figure who Ed Rinecki's boss is. Wait, who's who's his boss? Who's his boss? The Governor of California between 1966 to 1974. Ronald Wilson Reagan. Oh. oh. April <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> 11th, House Judiciary Committee. They vote to subpoena the tapes. Leon Jaworski subpoenas the tapes. So then, April 29th, 1994, Nixon agrees to turn over transcripts of the tapes. Now, why are the transcripts a failure? Simple. They're marked unintelligible, explicitly deleted, and they're kerfuffling around abuse. And on and the transcript only represented 31 of the 42 tapes subpoenaed by the Judiciary Committee and 24 of the 64 tapes subpoenaed by the by Leon Jaworski. So, May 9th, 1974, impeachment hearings formally getting into the President of the United States. Mm. On the day this happened, Nixon was asked by the press, and this is the great Nixon line, which is, what is it about press coverage of Watergate that's espoused your anger? And Nixon goes, don't give the impression that you get my anger. <laughs> uh, one can only be angry with those he respects. I just thought, boom, that's how you deal with the press. One can only be angry with those he respects. And everyone said, oh my God. What's he done here? I mean, <laughs> Honestly, uh, July 8th, 1974, the Supreme Court officially hears the Nixon, United States versus Nixon case, and it rules 8 0, 8 0, that Nixon must hand over the tapes. Guess who the one abstention was? 
Yeah. Uh, ooh. No idea. Who was a one abstention? Rehnquist. Of course it was. Do you know what? I was going to say Rehnquist. I thought maybe, may, maybe he turned the leaf. No. Rehnquist. Rehnquist. Rehnquist took all of the conservative opinions, all of them. I mean, famously, when Roe versus Wade was passed into law, only two people voted against it. Justice Blackman and yes, Rehnquist. <laughs> Any opinion to be on the wrong side of history, William Rehnquist was under the... Honestly. Yeah, he was. He decided not to vote a ruling on it because he could not conclude whether or not the president should hand over the tapes. Good God. Uh, July 30th, 1904, the impeachment vote formally begins in the House and you got five articles of impeachment. Now, the committee... Is comprised of twenty of it's comprised of twenty one Democrats, seventeen Republicans. Here's how they vote on Article One: abuse of presidential power. The committee votes twenty eight to ten. Twenty one Democrats, seven Republicans vote aye. The president did abuse his power, and ten Republicans voted no. On Article Number Two: contempt of Congress. Twelve. Whoa, 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 whoa. Was that right? Oh, sorry, wait, uh, sorry. Article 1, abuse of, uh, obstruction of justice, the committee yep. voted 27 to 11, 21 Democrats, 6 Republicans voted, I 11 Republicans voted, no, on obstruction of justice. So that's now formally before the House. Article 2, abuse of presidential power, the committee voted 28 to 10, 21 Democrats, 7 Republicans voted, I 10 Republicans voted, no, on abuse of presidential power. That goes before the House. Contempt of Congress. Uh, they, once again, they voted 21 to 17. 19 Democrats and two Republicans voted aye. Two Democrats and 15 Republicans voted no. Article 4, the bombing of Cambodia. This was the farcical nonsense that Nixon had somehow misled the House on winding the Vietnam War, which is absurd. He didn't mislead anybody. It's a well-known fact. If you wanted to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, you had to bomb Cambodia. Very sensible idea. Um, the way they bombed it wasn't very sensible, but the idea of cutting off Ho Chi Minh's supplies was sensible. Mm. Uh, but that was voted rightly down, 12, 12 to 26. 12 Democrats voting aye, 9 Democrats vote, uh, nine Democrats, and all 17 Republicans voting no. And on the non further nonsense charge of Nixon using public funds to improve his home in San Clemente and keep us in California and keep us in Florida, that was soundly defeated. 12 to 26. 12 Democrats voting aye. Nine Democrats and 17 Republicans vote no. So, what that means. Three articles of impeachment are going before the House. Two of them have at least one third of the Republicans voting yes. Actually, the first one has one third. Second has half. And the third one has about one tenth. So that means you'll get mm. two articles of each one of the Senate. And that could lead to one conviction primarily. And one is enough to get the President out. So, yeah. There weren't initially 67 votes, right? When did hell come in? August 5th, when famously the June 23rd tape was released. And what did the June 23rd tape show? Nixon not only knew about the cover-up, he orchestrated the cover-up. This was the infamous tape of Let's Fire L. Patrick Gray. Sorry? Did I finish it? The June 23rd, two tape. Yeah. Let's fire. Let's fire L. Pat, let's tell L. Patrick Gray, the director of the FBI, stop interfering with Watergate. Yeah, yeah. That tape got released public view. That tape conveniently was not given to the prosecutors. He withheld evidence that showed he orchestrated the entire cover-up. 
And famously, how do you know the game was up? He asked George Wallace of all people. George, who was basically the leader of the Southern Democrats, even though he was just the governor of Alabama. But of course, you know, it's powerful enough for George Wallace. But he had 18% of the vote. And he asked George, do we have a Southern Democrat? And Mr. President, you do not. And Barry Goldwater told him. I mean, Barry Goldwater, of course, is back in the Senate now, 1968. He was re-elected to the Senate. He was back in the Senate. And um, yeah. he told Nixon the game was up. And that was it. Nixon, August 8th, 1964, said famously, I have not been a quitter. To quit before my term of office goes with every bone in my body. But as president, I must heal the nation. Therefore, I will resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will assume the office at that hour in this office. And that was the end of arguably remarkable career of 28 years in Richard Nixon. Yeah. Who was an absolutely remarkable president in many ways. But also not in so many. No, no, he was quite a failure in, in some aspects. Kent State, Watergate, that's it, really. But in every aspect, absolutely fantastic president, in my view. Absolutely fantastic. Eight, eight mm. out of ten for Nixon. Eight out of ten for Nixon. Great president. What are your questions? Let's have the questions. Okay, Dad, so I've got... I've got. Well, I need to go by the t- before, before ten to. So we've got 20 minutes of questioning. All right. Yeah. Or, or maybe... 15 minutes, then we can have a rundown for five minutes after. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I've got I've got 10 questions written down here. Uh, I'll, I'll start. I'll, I'll Mike Mansfield and give one word answers. No, no, because no, I mean, these ones don't really, these ones will be more than one word answers, most of these. Oh, do you know, I guess, I guess you could actually do if I give one word answers. But um, so the first question I've got here is Did the Watergate scandal expose a deeply entrenched culture of corruption within the Nixon administration, or was it an isolated incident blown out of proportion by the media? Yes. Okay. <laughs> You're actually yes, the good no, of course it exposed the corruption, but it was a long stream of corruption. Remember the Ellsberg psychiatrists? Remember the White House plumbers? You know, uh, this was a long. This was just another scandal on top of the scandals. Remember, both parties have done scandals though with, with messing yep. around with each other's uh, political stuff. I mean, famously, when George Wallace was shot by Arthur Bremer in 1972, January, January 72, I think it was, and he was shot by Arthur Bremer. Nixon said, let's go and get some McGovern campaign leaflets and stick them in Arthur, Bre- Arthur Bremen's bedroom. <laughs> so, you know, this, yeah. this, this, this dirty trick. I mean, these are people that got Ed, when Ed Muskie, who was arguably one of the most skilled foreign policy thinkers, was standing on the snowy steps of New Hampshire and there was snow on his face because it was snowing that day and snow just trickling on your face. They said, how can he be president? He's crying. He's <laughs> Okay, and and here's another question then. Okay, so on that point also, on that point also, can we all just look? I'll be very brief. We can do it. The gotcha culture in politics is ridiculous. I mean, Howard Dean, who ran president in two thousand and four, who was got every call in Iraq right, was fiscally responsible, was very sensible, couldn't be president because he said "yeehaw" too loudly. What? He balanced the budget, he was civil partnerships, he was against the war in Iraq from the word go, he was for universal health care, you can't be president because you said yee-ha too loudly. Joe Biden couldn't be president in 2008 
We said Obama was clean and well spoken. Nevertheless, that's racist. Joe Biden has been has been is the, the, the loveliest of men, but even he will admit gaffer, a bit of a gaffer. Yeah. Right. So what? Bob Dole can't be president because he fell off a stage. He's a seventy-four year old man. There were no barriers. What did you expect? <laughs> True. You know, George H.W. Bush wasn't good because he vomited in the Prime Minister of Japan's lap. The man ended the Cold War without a third world war, bailed out the SNL industry, beat Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War, and that's what you want to remember him for? Anyway, get on with it. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm just I'm just saying, you know, Bill Clinton, oh yeah, Monica Lewinsky. Oh, that just discards twenty three million new jobs bounce budget, EITC welfare reform, the crime bill, about the getting the cards, that goes away. Because of that, I mean, what we mm. what we choose to be concerned about in the media, and what actually is like, for example, big shout out to Sophie Ridge, the Sky News journalist, absolute full praiser. She did an episode of our program, The Take with Sophie Ridge, very good show, and she focused on one thing: the economic news last night, the hundred percent debt, GDP, eight point seven percent inflation, and she didn't do political trivia, she didn't do personalities or politics, she focused on the economics for an hour with Mark Harper and the Labour Party person. I just thought, that's journalism. That's yeah. actual journalism. Where you take the news and you talk about the news. Not yeah. personality, the facts. So, I, I, and I, yes, my tweet was liked and retweeted because I expressed my gratitude for that. For a journalist actually being a journalist. Very good. Yes. Next question. Okay, so President Nixon said that he had no idea about the Watergate prison at yeah. all. Now, like, um, but but he did he he did admit to other situations of tampering and taping and so on. Yeah. So, do you believe President Nixon was aware of the Watergate breaking and sub and the subsequent cover up, or was he, he just was aware, uh, unfairly? He was, he was aware. He was aware that it happened after it happened. But he wasn't aware it was going to happen. Is that what you? No, no, not for one second. I do not believe for a minute that Richard Nixon authorized the Watergate uh, in terms of the breaking of the Watergate. I believe that Nixon's crime was that he just focused on the cover-up, hence the June 23rd tape. Yeah, okay. Um, so, was the... Okay, here, here's a very good question, though. You might like this, because you just talked about a journalist then. Was the role of... An... Is it... One minute. Is it good? Here you go. I think was, the... was the role of investigative journalism in Watergate, example of heroic reporting that exposed government wrongdoing, or did it cross ethical boundaries by, rely, by relying on anonymous sources and unverified information? Interestingly, about the Woodward Bernstein thing is that Carl Woodward and Bernstein, Carl Bernstein Edward Woodward, and Woodward were two of the best journalists in history, and they did Watergate masterfully, even though Woodward was a Democrat and Bernstein was a Republican, interestingly enough. But they crossed ethical lines, but they were trying to uncover the biggest one of the biggest scandals known to man, Watergate. The trouble is, Every journalist now thinks he's Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah. Would you not? Every yeah. scandal is not Watergate 2.0. Partygate yeah. is not Watergate. Nope. Actually, come close. No, not, not to the same extent. No, not to the same, but breaking the law, then lying about it, and everyone else to lie about it, and people inside the plot. You know. True, 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 true. But not every scandal is Watergate. And the children with gotcha journalism and investigative reporting, they think it is. So whilst Woodward and Bernstein did a masterful job, they laid down a precedent for the imbeciles. Okay, so here's, 
here, here's another question. Now, yeah. the, you, you know, you know the five separate parts of a tape that was erased that people showed mm. that Nixon happening. Do you think the White House tapes were deliberately erased by Nixon yes. to hide incriminating evidence? Yes, of course they were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that's a pretty that that is a one word. You answer. cannot delete five times the same amount of seconds at this on one tape and not say it wasn't deliberate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, of course, it's deliberate. Okay, okay. Here's another question: Did President Nixon's decision to resign demonstrate accountability and responsibility, or was it a calculated move to avoid impeachment and preserve his legacy? Well, to, it was to avoid impeachment and conviction, because if he was convicted, which he would have been, he'd have had to be gone for criminal trial. If he didn't, Gerald Ford would pardon him, which so, he did, and he'd avoid criminal trial. Yeah, so, 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 you say, so, so you're saying it was calculated and not, and not him showing accountability? Cal- of course it was calculated. Yeah. Nixon yeah. um, was the great tactician. True, true, he was, yeah. Okay, um... Okay, so the trouble so, now is, is that now Nixon resigned, every president must resign for small scandals. Reagan must resign for funding the standing ministers. Bill Clinton must resign for fucking an intern. George Bush, I mean, George W. Bush should have resigned for a long list of scandals, and I'll, we'll, one day we'll do an episode on that. And Trump must resign for, any, for what comes out of his mouth the next day. I mean, yeah. presidents should only resign or be impeached for serious, high, was it, high crime and misdemeanors, or a high crime, it should be. And Yes, torturing people is a crime. Yes, being on holiday for the first two days of Hurricane Katrina and not caring is a crime because you are grossly negligent in allowing people to die. Yes, mm. colluding with the Russians is a crime, but not every scandal is Watergate. Yeah. Only those who studied Watergate understand the appreciation and magnitude of the Watergate scandal. Well, well, uh, well this, this, we this, this, leads we me, this, this leads me brilliant to this question here then, Dad, yeah. To what extent do you think the Watergate scandal damaged public trust in government? Massively. And has the subsequent scandal been more or less egregious? Let's remember this. When the Senate hearings happened with the Watergate Senate hearings, right? Mm. It was on all three channels all day. Yeah. Soap operas, game shows, all these things they were taken off the TV and you had the Watergate hearings on television because of demand for the public. I'd end up with staggered coverage where ABC would be one day, NBC would be one day, CBS would be one day, but it got very high ratings. At peak, it peaked at 74% of the audience share, which is unheard of. Unheard of. That's like, in British terms, getting about 37.5 million views. King's Coronation? More, oh, more than that. The highest ever is the England World Cup match, 66, and that got 32.6. Really? Yeah. England, West Germany, 66. That got 32.6 million views. So that's five higher. So, hugely. And then when Jimmy Carter did his 1979 The Crisis of Confidence speech, he mentioned Watergate, how it damaged the public trust. Because it did. I mean, Republicans, let's be clear about this, would have won in 76 were it not for Watergate. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. Would Agnew have been president? I suspect not. It probably would have been Jerry Ford. It could have been Nelson Rockefeller. It could have been Ronald Reagan. But the Republicans would have won in 76 were it not for the Watergate scandal. Yeah. So, so then, do you believe reforms and regulations put in place after Watergate were effective and presented future political corruption? Or have, or have they merely created a more complex system that allows different forms of misconduct? Completely complex system. So, let's look at some of them. 
George W. Bush can redefine the definition of torture to organ failure or rendering death, and which is basically he can you can waterboard, you can bugger people, you can do emotional damage as well. That's okay, apparently. Uh, Barack Obama can go and do airstrikes of hospitals. That's okay, apparently. Um, you know, Bill Clinton, who, who did nothing wrong, as we know, but Bill Clinton can, you know, commit perjury under oath. And that's okay, because he's Bill Clinton. Ronald Reagan can illegally fund the Sandinistas who are murdering kids and murdering women and murdering old people in Nicaragua, and that's not illegal. Yeah. Do you get what that means? We we didn't we didn't define we we had a whole series of silly reforms in politics, you know, term limits, all these stupid ideas. It should just be simple. Don't commit crimes. Yeah. Well again, so, well no, here, here you go. This leads me perfectly into another question I'm gonna ask you now, Darren. Yeah. So yeah. was was the Watergate scandal primarily a failure of individuals and their moral compasses? Or did it or did it reveal a systematic flaw in in the U.S. political system, like 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 you said, Richard Nixon with the prostitutes outside the Democratic Convention, all because he all, all no all because all because or LBJ with the airplanes with yeah 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 because because to win votes to win votes. was it the flaw in the political system that forced no, Nixon to do Watergate think, look, or was it or was it individual moral compasses just being misguided? Look, what I'm what I'm about to say is going to be used against me now for the rest of my political life, but I'm going to say it anyways. There is nothing wrong with dirty tricks operations so long as it's legal. Okay. L-E-G-A-L. So long as it's legal and there is nothing wrong with... When you say legal, Dad. Yeah. When you, say, when you say legal, is it like, yeah. oh, you have, to, you have to go through 15 loopholes to get to it? Or is it like, straight, this is legal, this is illegal? No, straight legal. Not loopholes. Okay. Straight legal. As long as actually within the definition, as long as you're not violating the law, Dirty tricks is perfectly legitimate because as Lee Atwater says, you have to throw tacks in the road so the bus falls over. There is yeah. nothing wrong with it. Why? Because we've done so many dirty tricks operations. For heaven's sake. With the Democrats, okay. 1992, Bill Clinton, the best campaign ever. We paid someone to follow George H.W. Bush around to know where he was going to be. And therefore, he tell then tell Bill Clinton what was in the speeches, where he was going to be, and Bill Clinton would start reading it aloud. I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, 2000, someone leaked the debate questions to Al Gore, for Christ's sake. And Al Gore, being Al Gore, returned the questions, not untouched. You know? Yeah. You know, 1960, I mean, for, for everyone in Nixon's war, it was big limited. No. Nixon committed treason in 1968 when he violated the Logan Act. What is the Logan Act? Simple. You cannot manipulate foreign powers in an election. How did you do that here, anyone ask? When Hubert Humphrey announced that he was going to, if he become president, he'd end the bombing of the North. And four days before the election, LBJ announced he'd end the bombing as full season of all bombing of North Vietnam. And the Democrats shot up throughout October. September, October. What did Nixon do? Nixon contacted an emissary in North in South Vietnam to tell the North Vietnamese if they don't deal with Cuba Lyndon Johnson, they'll get a better deal with Nixon as president. Four days before the nineteen sixty eight presidential election. <laughs> 
I mean, for heaven's sake, Reagan sent John Connolly to go to te- go to to go to Iran and tell some people close to Ayatollah that if they didn't deal with Carter now, they'd get a better deal with Reagan on the hostages. So, I mean, that that's obviously beyond dirty tricks. That's just cruelty yep. manipulation. But there's nothing wrong with dirty tricks. Okay, there's nothing wrong with. You know, William Miller saying the Goldwater plan will abolish social security and put it on banners. Miller wants to abolish social security. Very bad, very bad. Yeah, but nothing wrong with that. That's the rough and tumble of political campaigning. What is wrong and what is unethical is, for example, George W. Bush in 2004 saying John Kerry's not a war hero. Mm. Even though the Navy said he was, even though his fellow comrades said he was, even though he said to save two men from death in Vietnam, and George Bush's flashbacks to blackouts. Yeah. Well, in the okay, 100- so then- in the 100- Bush said in the 177th parallel wing, got pissed off his head, and didn't, it was the champagne wing because they never actually needed, and John Kerry served in Vietnam. But apparently John Kerry was the traitor and Bush was the patriot. Please give me a break. Anyway, next one. Hey, uh, well, well, this, well, this leads me to the final question here. Then, all right. I thought I'd more. I had, I had, I had eight, not ten. Sorry, miscount. That's okay. I, That's all right. Okay. Um. So, was the punishment uh, that was given out to those involved in the Watergate scandal proportional to the proportional to the magnitude of their crimes, or were some individuals unfairly uh unfairly scapegoated? Whilst other escaped accountability, was it was it perfect? Was everybody treated exactly how they should have been charged, or was it somewhere charged completely less? Like right. I don't know, it was charged let's completely less. Let's get one fact out. Years. Right, let's get one fact out of the way. There is no such thing as equal justice before the law. Mm. Are you telling me a working class guy on thirty thousand pounds a year is treated the same before the legal system as someone on five hundred thousand a year? Of course yeah. not. There is yeah. no such thing as equal justice for the law. If a disabled person is an able-bodied person, the black person, the white person, no, there isn't. Let's be clear. Did people actually want Nixon in prison for something that was best, not as bad as Lyndon Johnson had done? Is that what they were asking? Because if that's what they're asking, that is ridiculous. LBJ had booked Barry Goldwater's plane and had used it to run political ads. That is, God knows how many laws he's broken there. Yeah. And look, I'm a Lyndon Johnson fan for my last night. I think LBJ is a legend. But that's a crime. Right? Yeah. F- FDR, FDR decided to get the military people to fly planes they were not trained to fly, which led to the Lindbergh mass, the Lindbergh disaster. And they had to then, and oh yeah, famously, what happened? The, the, the plane breeding process was corruption. Roosevelt had to nationalize the planes, make it military planes, military planes only flying deliveries. Long since they all fly the mail, they crashed, 17 young kids died, and then they had to give back to the private companies again. What, you're going to peach Franklin Roosevelt for that? You're going to peach yeah. Franklin Roosevelt for interning Japanese people? I think fucking not. So, you know, what did he do wrong when you think about it? Okay, he lied. Fine, he covered stuff up very bad. He, he obstructed justice. Okay, very bad. What does that merit? That merits leaving the presidency. Should he have got a judicial slap on the wrist, i.e. a massive fine and some form of suspended prison sentence? Yes, he should have. There should have been some form of judicial punishment. 
But you're not going to have Richard Nixon in handcuffs going to prison. That isn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, All right, listeners. Next, well, actually on Sunday, we'll do a debate episode on the question of should what is the alternative to the welfare state or is there an alternative to the welfare state? Uh, the answer, of course, is no, but not for but no, but also possibly. So we'll get into that mm. in the question later. Uh, but until Sunday, good listeners. Goodbye. Bye bye.